0: Well, welcome back to another edition of Capitalize Your Fridays. This is Michael Williams. I'm your co-host. I'm the founder and president of Altius Financial and co-host of the podcast Capitalize Your Fridays. Taylor McGowan is our senior wealth design specialist. Say hello, Taylor.
1: Hi. And just a reminder, it's it's Taylor Dennis now. Oh, yeah. I know.
0: Sorry about <laughs> it's that. It's
1: hard to get to keep it straight.
0: I keep calling her Taylor McGowan, but her married name is Taylor Dennis, and uh yeah. And congratulations to her, her and Dave. To the, what, you guys, front at least on your six month anniversary, right?
1: Oh yeah! Now we're I think wow, on we're on like months. nine, nine <laughs> months.
0: That's Jeez, fantastic.
1: We've just passed our six months of living in California anniversary. Yeah.
0: So this episode, we thought we would talk about what we're doing as a group in our Altius office. We're, we decided to do, I don't know if we're calling it a book club, but we're doing regular reading of some interesting book that we uh, agree upon. And the current one is called The Psychology of Money. And we thought it'd be worthwhile for us to share a little bit of that discussion. Some of the questions we're asking ourselves it's an interesting book by Morgan Housel, and again, it's called The Psychology of Money, and we decided that, that it'd be worthwhile to uh, share some of our thoughts and, and discuss it on the uh, podcast. Yeah.
1: So I'll, I'll start off with our disclaimer before we get too far into this. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of investment advice or financial planning. No advisor-client relationship is formed by the broadcasting of this episode or your listening of what we say. The use of this information or any materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content in this podcast is not meant as a substitute for professional financial advice. If you're needing specific financial advice for your situation, please reach out to your certified financial planner or if you're interested in learning more about our firm, our people, or our philosophy, feel free to reach out to us through our website, which is altiusfinancial.com, or contact us directly by email at taylor@altiusfinancial.com at or michael at altiusfinancial.com, just so you're aware that is A-L-T-I-U-S-financial.com. Okay, so as Mike shared, we've been kind of going through this book over the last few, well, maybe a couple of months almost um, and just kind of breaking down one chapter a week as a team and diving into what our thoughts are on the concepts of the different chapters and really what we think that um, the value of some of these different discussions is Mike kind of came to me and said, well, okay, each chapter maybe has one to two key topics. I mean, if there's a 1920 chapter book, this is going to be a 1920 hour <laughs> like discussion. Uh, so I, I thought we'd kind of break it down into the the top three things that we or at least that I felt that we got out of the book I'd love to hear from our listeners if you guys are reading this book or if you've already read it if you have any thoughts on well what are what are your key takeaways um, to me the key takeaways here were that saving is a kind of a historically or relatively um new concept and I would like to kind of rephrase that as well saving for retirement is a new concept I know mike you you would probably button and say has well, been around forever yeah
0: people have been like you know realizing that they couldn't always uh find food right so you got to yeah. save up the berries or you know try to preserve the meat or whatever and then later on you, you know as you became you know, a little bit more wealthy than just a hunter-gatherer society, people would try to save more and hoard more uh, that they could trade with. And, and, but saving for, uh, actually I'd say it's retirement. That's sort of the new concept, saving for retirement, thinking you're going to have, you know, a decade or two or three or five decades of, you know, where I'm no longer, you know, day to day working and producing because I've got a nest egg, some savings that is working for me. Um, But I got to consciously build that up and plan for it. That's a pretty new idea because most people throughout history, like we said, were you know um, saving and working most of their lives, um, and then they died.
1: Yeah. So, and I'm I'm going to introduce these two, and then we'll we'll jump back to that first one. So there's three different topics. So as I said, the savings. Um, I think the concept that wealth isn't necessarily what you see is a is a key aspect that's discussed in this book, Psychology of Money, and then the third one is really. Deciding on an investment strategy and then sticking to it. So I'm going to leave you at that at that start, and then I'm going to kind of go through some of the notes that I had on these different chapters, and maybe invite some questions for Mike, um, so we can kind of discuss our thoughts on. Yeah, them, and I, you like. know,
0: I really do appreciate you facilitating this episode of the podcast, as well as you've been doing with our group. I mean, you've been the one in charge of actually kind of walking us through the key lessons from the book, and I, I, it's an important book, so I appreciate that.
1: Thanks. So, and I think we've already kind of touched on this in, in previous podcast episodes, but jumping back to the, well, saving for retirement or saving overall, is it's a very important thing to do. And saving for retirement is a relatively recent thing to do. In chapter one, they really kind of dove into the fact that pensions weren't necessarily created for a living wage and neither were social security. Mike, do you have any quick thoughts on that? Or
0: Yeah, it's interesting because uh Social Security itself is not that old. In fact, it's the same age as my dad. My dad was <laughs> born in 1935, and so was Social Security. So it's, it's you know, it's not that old. It hasn't been around for for that long. It, it obviously came about partly because of the Great Depression and some of the insecurities that happened then. Um, most of our clients know that I think it's not you know a good idea. The safety net itself is not so safe. Um, but that whole idea of having a government. Um, put money away, or take money from you, and then say later on we're going to send you a pe- pension, um, it, that, that itself is new. And again, they, they didn't expect to have people really living off of it. In fact, actuarially, Social Security was not supposed to work the way it all, all does because in 1935 when they, when they started it, the average life expectancy for Americans was 63. Yeah. You know, uh, early 60s is how long you were supposed to live. But the pension age was supposed to be 65. So they were counting on you know, like just accumulating. Yeah. years. We're <laughs> yeah. actually even, even less than that because you, know, you wouldn't even collect on it. You'd die before you started to collect on it. That's how the math was done back then. And for those lucky few who lived longer than 63, if they made it to 65, then they could claim Social Security. And we figured, well, they'll probably die pretty soon after that. Yeah. And that worked for a while, but as life expectancy got better or longer. And as governments got more, oh, we'll just shift the surpluses over into our general fund and we'll spend it the way we want, the The whole system has become less secure. But but again, it wasn't originally intended to be the, the main source of retirement income. That was really supposed to come from your personal savings.
1: Yeah. Well, and one of the first stories that the author brings in is that, okay, and I don't know how, we, we talked about the lotto and like I won the lottery. What what to do next? But this book kind of dove into the, well, have you ever seen someone where they say, I don't really know if I can cover my groceries this week, but hey, I, I just got my lotto ticket. And if I win this, I got $3 million. I'm, I'm set for life. And um, and maybe some of you are going, yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm just like that. Or some of you are thinking, gosh, who would do, why would you do that? You'd need the money for the groceries. And so it, it kind of goes into the concept of, well, what, what is savings? And part of having financial stability to say, hey, I can put $10, $20, 10000 or $20,000 per month or week or year away to build for the future expenses that I have, having flexibility to know that you can put that money away versus having a lifestyle where you're saying, no, I, I can I can't really cut to cover the expenses. Having different perspectives can really change what Savings means to you, and, um, yeah, and I think how you react.
0: And I think I, that is the bigger picture of the overall book. That, that you know, hence the title, right? The psychology of money. Do you have yeah. the right kind of psychology? And I thought that was really interesting. That first chapter where he's saying, you know, no one's crazy. I'm like, well, lots of people I know are crazy, especially yeah. with regard to money. You know, that, that, and 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 that first example you gave of the lotto. So it to me, it's like not just crazy, but insane. To yeah. say I can't put food on the table, but I'm going to be putting money into lottery tickets. Yeah, but he's saying that's the mentality that you know, that that's the psychology of how they might have grown up and the way they think of you know trying to catch up, so to speak. Or so the, that first idea of saying, well, you have to kind of dig back into someone's the way they were raised and the way their personal experiences, how they came to their own psychology of money before you can judge, you know, is that an effective psychology to manage money correctly?
1: Yeah. And then even later on in the book, he kind of goes back to this concept of savings and he says, well, maybe some of you are already well off. Maybe you're comfortable and you can you have enough for retirement. You have enough for the car. You have enough for the house. You've already saved to accumulate for those big goals that you have. That doesn't mean it's time to stop saving. <laughs> um, that The reality is there's lots that can happen in your life that you maybe aren't planning for. Maybe that's health. Maybe it's something happens in your home. Maybe it's something happens to your car or some family change. Um, So the underlying concept of, okay, well, maybe I don't necessarily have something that I'm reaching for right now. Maybe it's, I don't need to save for that vacation. I've already got that set aside, but you should still continue to be saving. If you're earning, you should be saving. I do want to jump into the next one, the wealth isn't what you see and I'm, I'm gonna ask you a question i don't think we've gotten to this i don't know if we've talked about this as a team yet but he talks about the guy you see in like the cool ferrari and you're looking around and and tell me how you think about this have you ever wondered about the guy in the ferrari or do you always just think oh wouldn't it be cool to be me in the ferrari <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, <what laughs> or are you, you a you car mean, like- guy at all <laughs> I think you know. I'm not exactly a car guy. Um, (laughs) Yeah. My car mentality was, you know, formed early in my life about saying, you know, I bought a Fiat. I I thought I was kind of thinking I wanted to be the cool guy in the Fiat, even though it was a crappy little Fiat, and it was totally unreliable. And so my that was the formative time period of me being a car shopper, car owner. And all I said after that is, I want something to be easily maintained. And run forever, be very dependable. Dependability was the big thing after that, because I, you know, there were too many times I stalled out on college campus with my little Fiat and my friends making fun of me. <laughs> and so I'm not a car guy, and I, but I do think about the guy in the car in the Ferrari. You know, whenever you're driving around and you see a really great-looking vehicle, fast, you know, sports car or something like that, I think about myself being in the car and owning that kind of car, or the guy who does own that car. But those, to me, are fleeting thoughts. You know, they're sometimes they're inspirational. I mean, I'm a believer in you know, kind of having a values map and and you know, uh, having pictures of things I want. You know, yeah. things that I'm uh, ambitious for in the future. If I wanted a Ferrari or whatever, I, I don't necessarily want one. But I, I do think you can be inspired by photographs or people experiencing life, uh, experiencing wealth in meaningful ways.
1: Yeah. So I think what the book kind of got into was. Oftentimes, you see these examples of things that you might presume are wealth, and the the author goes into saying that, well, that's not really that's not your wealth. That's your riches. That's not money that you're keeping anymore. That's a dep- maybe a depreciating asset. Or, but oftentimes, you see those items, and you're looking at the item itself. You're not necessarily looking at, well, is this is does this person have a great financial plan? What how, what's their saving strategy? How are they? Um, who's the person behind the car? And the other the flip side of that is oftentimes the person behind the car is also reaching for something. So maybe they're saying, "Hey, half of my rent bill went to this car because I want everyone to see me." But when the reality is most of the people are looking at the car more than the human behind the car.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with that. And and, and wealth is deceiving sometimes that way. You you, you sometimes see the results of the wealth, without the without seeing the habits or the virtues that produce the wealth, and that's yeah, you know, that's the way we are as human beings. I mean, I think that's partly true of of you know if you think about pro athletes, you know the people who are most excellent at basketball or tennis or whatever it might be, you don't think about you know all the lonely times they spent on the court, you know, perfecting their craft or getting stronger or getting better at what they did. You you see the the wonderful you know, things they can do with a ball today, but you don't, you know, you see the tip of the iceberg, but you don't see the whole, all the investment they made in that. And, and in one sense, you really can't cheat being a professional athlete. You know, you, you either have the goods or you don't, but, but in terms of wealth, you can, you can say, see me, I'm in the Ferrari. Yeah. <laughs> but again, I'm, you know, but I, maybe it's I all can't debt. pay the rent. <laughs> you know, yeah. There's a, there's a really, there's another book and I think I may have mentioned this before, but you know, there's there's a series of books, the guy's no longer alive, but he wrote, his name's Tom Stanley, and he wrote the original uh, book titled The Millionaire Next Door, and he made all kinds of examples of that, that most typical millionaires who really truly have million or tens of millions of dollars of net worth in America are likely first-time millionaires. They're not inherited wealth, uh, and they you wouldn't tell it. They're not driving Ferraris around. Yeah. Versus, and he contrasts that he gives. I remember this specifically. He has a story in his book about the surgeon who has a great income. Uh, this the story about a guy who's a great surgeon. He earns a lot of money, but he doesn't manage his wealth. He lives in a mansion, but yeah. he's hiding from the paper boy. He can't even afford to, to, you to, know, to pay they, his paper, pay the paper, paper boy. Yeah. yeah, and so that that's where you know wealth itself can be deceiving that way because sometimes you're looking at the results of it um, or what people want you to see and not really seeing either the work that went behind it or the debt behind it, like you said.
1: Yeah. So exactly like you're saying, the book kind of goes into, well, maybe the surgeon is, he's rich, he's making good money, but maybe he's not wealthy because that money's not really sticking.
0: Right. He hasn't made it stick.
1: So the contrast between, okay, what is wealth and what is like actually staying with me? I did think that there was a good, in chapter three, they, he dove into, well, I mean, what is really enough? And I think when you're reflecting on your own wealth journey, having clarity on well, what what do I really want? Like you were saying, Mike, having pictures of okay, well, here are goals for myself. You don't have to have the same goals as yeah, the millionaire next door. The
0: stories he gave in that chapter were really good. What what does it mean to have enough? And yeah, and is it really from an internal motivation where you thought about your own values and what you really care about, what motivates you, versus external motivation? You know, he he. I like the phrase he has. You know, the ceiling of social comparison is so high that virtually no one ever hits it. You know, and that battle can't be won. You, you know, no yeah. matter what, there's likely someone richer than you. And if you're trying to compare yourself always to that that richer person, well, by the time you get there, even if it's the richest person in the world, they may not be the richest person in the world anymore. So you, that's a losing battle. And you want to have it, the motivation be more internal.
1: Yeah. Well, and on that same note, it's it comes back to the: is there ever enough? I mean. Can you have a point where you say, well, I've reached something that I've been reaching for and now it's time to celebrate that and enjoy it rather than jump to the next hurdle that you need to kind of climb over?
0: Yeah, I think I think it's a really good uh, perspective that he's adding there. I, I did have a question on that part of it, though, you know, what's enough? I know that there's been lots of academic studies where they come out and say, well, anyone who has more than two or three hundred thousand dollars in income, you know, they don't need it and they're not going to make them happier. And there may be some truth in that, um, but I, I don't like that ceiling type of thing where people say, you know, this, is, this is the most you need. Yeah. You know, if you yeah, want to hit wanna... there, you should be happy. <laughs> you know, quit, quit trying to strive for more, quit trying to produce more, quit trying to be ambitious about the world. I mean, most of the people who get past you know, a really consistent $300,000 in income per year, more often than not, they're doing it in terms of their productivity. You know, they're, yeah, they're they're producing more. Uh, they're producing more value in the world, and I think that's a great thing. And we wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to ever have that capped. But I do think his point about, you know, the people who are always always striving for more financial wealth and having that be external, so they can say, you know, I've got bigger net worth than you do, uh, that can be that can be uh, problematic. Yeah. You know, psychologically.
1: Well, and I I would never want to tell people that they need to feel like enough's enough. I'm done earning this. I mean, obviously if you're retiring, that's a different situation, but I don't want you to say, okay, I've hit my cap. This is my personal glass ceiling. I'm I'm done here. Once I hit this point, I I don't want you to feel limited by any decisions, but I think being able to feel fulfilled when you accomplish maybe a next level or, um, to have clarity on what your desires are Mm -hmm. is definitely crucial. So my third category was really thinking about the value of okay, what kind of investment strategy do I want to have and really sticking to it. In the last chapter of this book, the um, the author really kind of dives into, okay, I'm going to kind of let you under the covers, com- really confess all of what I'm going through financially and what decisions I've made. And I think that was kind of helpful to say, okay, you spent the whole book kind of telling us, here's what you should be doing with your money. Okay, okay, okay. Now here's what I'm actually doing. And I think that's it's helpful to look at. I think in our industry, we see lots of different people in different situations and understanding that yes, how you feel about things is definitely gonna change what you really wanna do with your money, what you wanna do as your investment strategy. But I think having clarity on what do I want my investment strategy to be going into things is much better to say, okay, now I can stick to that.
0: That's the challenge though is because People learn best by having some experience, right? Yeah. So you need more experience to decide, okay, what am I going to stick with? Well, yeah. So
1: maybe in the beginning you're saying, oh, this was a bad decision. But the, the challenge is like he compares the active versus value discussion, which we've, we've talked with clients about. We've talked on this podcast about and actually it was active versus passive. And he kind of says, well, I mean, you can have a time where you're going, okay, passive is going great or no passive went horrible, but active looks good. Let's jump to active. And if you're jumping back and forth and back and forth, you're likely to find that you're going to be at the bottom of both ends. Yeah, I mean, that's you're not absolutely gonna...
0: true. I mean, people who are always uh, jumping to another cooler strategy, the one that seems to be working right now, usually have the worst performance. And and there, there are certain things that you know that are at a higher level. You know, we pound the table on you know spending less than you earn. You know, so that you yeah. have some margin for error there. That's much more important principle for acquiring wealth. Than whether you do an active versus passive, right? Yeah. A person who can't save and invest, it doesn't matter whether they're trying to use active versus passive because they're always going to be dipping into their nest egg and blowing it, right? Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah. Well, so he did make one comment. Let me find this because I, I thought it was really interesting to hear, and it was something along the lines of like you can get most of your investment decisions wrong, and still be just fine. And I I can't find exactly what it, where it was, but that was kind of the concept of it. Is okay, well. If you're invested in, I don't know, 40 things and most of them are not doing great, but one is just hitting it out of the ballpark, then your portfolio might be just fine. I mean, what are, what are your thoughts on when he says that? What does that make you feel or is that?
0: I think it's a lesson I've, I've learned uh, a long time ago, but you can't say you've ever learned it. And it's, it's, continu- it's a continuously uh, evolving lesson, that, but it's about sizing of risk. And so if you make, you know, for example, let's say you buy 10 different investments and they're all equal in size and half of them do well and half of them don't do well, then you'll get one kind of result. But if you say, no, I'm going to, there's, there's three or four that that are at the top of my list and I'm going to put more money into those that I have the most confidence in. If those three or four do great and all seven of the other ones do horrible, then you still will probably do fine. So you can uh, make lots of guesses or investments and have most of them be wrong. But if you are willing to take more risk on the ones that you think could be right, that's the problem is it requires taking some risk. And that's where making lots of investments over the course of a lifetime is a good thing. And that's why you know when, when a person is continually accumulating wealth and always buying assets, their chances of hitting something that really makes up for lots of other losses or mediocre performance are a lot better. And that's why we you know, continually stress that people should be always adding to their portfolio so they have the chance of being in on that one home run. So I, yeah, I agree that you can, you definitely can get uh, many of your guesses wrong and still do well, especially if you're adding to your portfolio all the time.
1: Okay. Another interesting thing that he kind of brought in, he compared investing as like a fee versus a fine type situation. He kind of said that well, like if you're going to Disney, you're paying a fee to get into Disney and um, you're hoping it's going to be a great time. And regardless, even if it rains, you're you're still getting the benefit of you were at Disney and it was hopefully you got your Mickey ears or whatever kind of activity. Now, if on the flip side, you're paying to invest in Div- Disney, it seems more like a fine is how he described it. That for some people, investing in the actual company versus doing some type of activity.
0: I mean that's the psychological perception. Yeah, the like psychological
1: pe- perception. So he he was saying that well, is it harder to hold on to things because of that perception or what what are your thoughts on that? Like do you do you think it's harder for clients to conceptualize the individual investments that we're purchasing in their portfolios because it's they're not getting any current. Yeah, I think that's like, I think that's enjoyment? part of
0: the the uh, mystery of life, so to speak, where people don't necessarily they appreciate the pleasure the point of pleasure with Disney is, well, riding the rides or you know, getting to to you know see the the uh, characters and so forth where you're a kid. Yeah. That's an immediate pleasure type of thing. Versus, you know, getting into the mode of saying I'm accumulating capital and having that become a pleasurable thing, even though you're delaying the gratification. It's kind of like, you know, the people who are the most successful dieters and exercisers turn that diet and exercising process into this is what's pleasurable to me. I no longer get that much joy from eating the Twinkies or the cookies, in my case. Yeah. <laughs> um, not not Twinkies, but cookies. I'm a cookie guy, not a Twinkie guy. Um, but you know, eating something that's you know sort of decadent and not really good for me, but you know, gives me pleasure immediately. Yeah. Versus that thing that really is in my long term best interest. You know, my vegetables or or uh, you know good proteins or doing the exercise. It's the people who actually see themselves as, you know, they turn their identity into this is where I get pleasure. I get pleasure from the process of fueling my body properly, or I get pleasure from the process of adding to my portfolio and accumulating that financial independence. Yeah. They're the ones who are successful because they turn that into an identity type of thing. But initially you're right. It's like, okay, I pay a fee and I I see the, you know, the value with regard to, you know, it's a trade. When I go to Disney versus buying Disney stock is like I just get penalized. Money goes out, and what do I got? Yeah, and then maybe
1: it goes down some days, or it goes up, and you're going, "Okay, well, I put in money, and I where what am I getting out of this?" Right. So for you, you'd say part of strategizing your investments is actually kind of getting in the mindset of, "Oh, this is me enjoying the process." And
0: I think that's a big part of it. I think that's a big part of life. Is is you know, enjoying the process of getting better and in, even enduring pain uh, for a bigger, longer-term yes or a bigger, longer-term win or a bigger, longer-term pleasure. Um, but I also think that's a crucial thing is to keeping that balance, right? We, yeah. we run up against clients all the time who have plenty of wealth and they're not really enjoying it or spending it. And we're trying to coach them on t- saying, okay, here's maybe what you could do. Here, you know, are there travel that you want to take? Do you want to help your kids in this way? Are there causes you care about that you want to invest in? There's always that balance of, you know, uh, current pleasure versus future, bigger term pleasure. You know, people have to live today and enjoy today, but sometimes people are way out of balance. They're just only consuming. They never see the pleasure and can't conceive of it being pleasurable to save, invest, and and have that longer term security.
1: Yeah, because in their mind it's it's similar to that chapter in the book where they're saying, well, I want to go to the restaurant or I want to go on the trip. I don't want to save for the trip twenty years from now. I want to do the Mm -hmm. trip right now. Right. Um so having a balance between and I think it's it's crucial to say that as much as the author emphasizes on having a solid investment strategy having a a solid saving strategy is almost even more crucial just to say okay well i know that i'm going to be putting this away every paycheck or every month or systematically
0: having that habit absolutely yeah. and and you know it's interesting just that that whole idea of habit formation is there there's more and more research being done on goal achievement habit formation you know what success, what really works with regard to whatever kind of goal you have and the the language of saying well here's here's current present me and the you know the short-term thinking uh, here's what I want right now but here's future me who's saying wait here's I'm making an argument too <laughs> yeah here's who I'm going to be in the future and I want that pleasure then too so you know having the balance between the present me and future me is is a useful kind of analogy.
1: Yeah, definitely. I do think this kind of, and I didn't put it in the top three, but I do think that one of the other big things that he emphasizes, especially when bringing up the example about Berkshire Hathaway and um, Warren Buffett, he kind of talks about the value of compounding. And I think that I, I don't know if I was aware that most of Warren Buffett's wealth was accumulated in his later years. Yeah. I don't know that that's necessarily common knowledge.
0: No, I think it's a huge point. I mean, you know, 95% of the wealth that Warren Buffett has and has produced in the world came after he was eligible to claim social security.
1: Yeah, which I I was shocked reading that. Yeah.
0: And that that's just that that, you know, that exponential growth on and the author makes, you know, the the important point that Buffett started investing when he was 10 years old. He started investing in the stock market at 10 years old, but he was consistently always adding to his portfolio. And sure, he had some great calls and he's a wonderful investor, but Housel, the author of the book, is making the point that, yeah, that's important. His mind and his ability to pick investments is, is crucial in terms of his wealth accumulation, but don't discount. And, and it's really as important or maybe even more important that he stuck with it. He started early and stuck with it. And that that long-term compounding is, is really magical if you let it work for you.
1: Well, so what would you tell our listeners if they were saying, hey, I don't know if my investment strategy is working for me. Can I change it again? How many times can I change my investment strategy? Or when do I know that I should change my investment strategy?
0: Well, like we said before, you don't want to be changing strategies all the time. Uh, if you're young and you're kind of experimenting with the what you understand and you're reading, you're becoming a student of investing in, in the markets, then it's okay to make some shifts and changes. But I think that point itself is important. You know, are you the kind of person who wants to learn how to do this, who wants to study markets, who wants to understand how that compounding works, or do you want to delegate it? And then you have to figure out who do you trust. And that can be a big thing. You know, you might say, okay, I like this person, but I don't know, you know, do I trust them? I'd say become better at asking questions. Does your financial advisor facilitate that learning where you... Continually gain more confidence in what they're doing by how they're explaining it, even if it's, you know, things that aren't working in their portfolio. Are you getting more confidence about their understanding of why they're doing what they're doing, or does it just seem like they're, you know, throwing darts at the wall? Yeah. Um, I think that's a big piece of it. But ultimately, you you have to be able to choose. You have to be able to say, okay, here I'm going to stick with this strategy and and let it work. Yeah. And of course, we're biased, uh, you know, to the Altius philosophy. And, and you know, focusing on value, focused on long-term um, character of the companies that we're, we're investing in, the, the viability of their products, and certainly buying them at the right price. Yeah.
1: Well, so kind of just summing things up, this book is just a wealth of knowledge. And it was great to kind of look at how others have experienced things differently than maybe you did or maybe similarly to how you have and how that might change financial decisions that you might be making or um, might make down the road.
0: So what would you give it a thumbs up or a five stars? Or wh- how would you rate this book in terms of our <laughs> listeners? Would you say, well, we read it for you and we gave you some summaries of it and you know, you, you're good. Or would you say, yeah, definitely you should read it.
1: I think out of one to 10, cause that's what we ask everybody. Um, 10 being great. One being thumbs down. I'd probably give it maybe an eight. I think it, as far as financial books go, it was a pretty easy read. It's, um, it's kind of like a okay. I can read a chapter in a day, and it's not overwhelming. And I think it have a lot of good knowledge. So for someone who's saying I want to understand what I should be doing with my finances a little bit better, or I want to understand if I am maybe on track, or if there's something I need to revisit, this is a really great starting point.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I'd, I'd give it a solid eight, and I would recommend it. I think uh, that the the whole idea of the psychology of money is important because people and their their past and the kind of Mental framework they bring to investing does make a difference, and he has enough anecdotes in the book about you know people who've succeeded or failed in different yeah. ways that I think is uh, useful and inspiring to continue to make progress. So I'd say read it.
1: Yeah, definitely. So in closing, thank you guys for listening to our podcast. We invite you to follow, like, friend, subscribe on Facebook, Instagram, obviously on this podcast site as well. All platforms are saved as Altius Financial. It's all in one word. We also invite you to follow along with our Terminology Tuesdays. We're posting those every week. If you have any ideas for what we should maybe do next year, it's still a few months out, but if you have any ideas for what we should do next year as a weekly item, um, or if you have suggestions for future podcast episodes, feel free to reach out to us, taylor at altiusfinancial.com or michael at altiusfinancial.com. We also have lots of great resources on our website, www.altiusfinancial.com. Feel free to check that out. We are actually working on revising some of our marketing and client-facing information. So you might see some new information on our website and I hope you are enjoying that and checking it all out.
0: Thank you, everyone. Uh, Please continue to listen and uh, give us feedback and pass on, share this stuff. Yeah. Have a happy Friday um, and capitalize on your Friday.
1: Yep. Happy Friday. Thanks for listening.